Hi, and welcome to Ruby's Ask Me Anything Office Hours with your host, Dan Merrick. Um, my name is Dan Merrick. I'm the Director of Plant-Based Culinary and Development. And uh, these hours are actually made so you can ask our chefs and our instructors any questions you have about food-related questions. They can be things that are from the class, things that are outside the class, or just general questions about food. We typically try to get through all of our questions in each day, um, and I typically try to answer them completely honestly, um, especially from my viewpoints. Because I'm a director of plant-based culinary, I typically focus on more plant-based items than outside of that spectrum, just because that's not my expertise. But if we don't know the answer to a question, we'll gladly get back to you and send you emails to be able to help out as well. With that being said, let's get started into our Ask Me Anything office hours, and we'll start out with a couple questions. Our first question actually comes from Phoenix. This decade, I'll begin a chain of independent schools. Nutrition and our midday meal hour will be an important part of our curriculum. Do you have any suggestions for must-reads? This is actually fantastic because I actually have a big history in school food. I used to work for Whole Kids Foundation where I helped train um, food service professionals to be able to go back to scratch cooking from more processed food. So it's something that I really take dearly um, and is, you know, a passion of mine for certain. Um, if you're looking for reads, you know, there are a lot of different books out there. One of my favorites is probably The Labor of Lunch. Um, and that's by, I think it's Jennifer Gardner. Um, uh, we'll put a link up for that as well, too. Um, so that's probably one of the best reads that I would say for it. But quite honestly, there are a lot of other things that I would do besides just reading books to be able to start into that. Um, now, you know, depending on the type of independent schools you're going to be doing, if they're going to be something, um, you know, that's following more traditional curriculum or if they're going to be a Montessori um, program or something like that, it really depends on um, the, the style that you want to do. So there are a lot of big players out there in school food, and that might be where you want to get a start talking about that. <clears throat> there are some great theories about... Um, kids serving themselves so doing like a family style lunches um, in fact the edible schoolyard uh, experimented with that quite a bit um, having basically carts that the kids could roll out and they would have larger dishes um, you know filled up to be able to have the, the portions that the kids all needed for them and they had a proper scoop so when they scooped out the portion it would be the exact portion that they had to meet uh, according to the usda guidelines um, and it really, uh, you know, created a sense of community um, in those. And that's a very kind of Montessori style, but it was used in a public school setting as well. Something else you might want to look at is uh, the School Nutrition Association. Um, the School Nutrition, Nutrition Association has a lot of information on there. It's actually probably the leading source for food service um, in the United States, at least. Um, and there's a lot of information that you can actually get by either being a member or going to one of their many conferences around the country. Um, I used to go to these very regularly. I was a speaker at many of them as well. I'm um, just talking about going back to, uh, to scratch cooking as well. Um, but they have a lot of literature. They have tons of meetings. They have lots of uh, connections to be able to meet as well. 
Now, there are also some other fun players out there in the field, too. So uh, Daniel Gusti, um, who used to be uh, one of the Michelin-starred chefs at um, uh, Noma in Copenhagen, has a, um, a school food program called uh, Brigade. Uh, that's a pretty cool one where he's basically trying to bring higher end food and more less processed food to schools as well. But you also might want to check out things like the Chef Anne Foundation, um, Whole Kids Foundation. Um, there are some great organizations out there around um, school food and some kind of, uh, you know, markers to be able to get you on your start. So uh, reading is great, but really talking to the people that are experts in the field is probably the best way to be able to start looking um, at uh, nutrition and looking at that midday, that midday meal program. Um, there are a lot of ways you can work education into that too, from school gardens um, to actually doing some cooking experiments in classrooms too. So I hope that helps out, Phoenix. All right, so also from Phoenix, loving the chicken and mushroom sauce recipe. However, my sauce broke, which to me means it's not creamy with some curdling in the cream. Is that because I substituted half and half or because I need to practice my technique? Thank you. So that's actually um, could be a couple different things. Um, you know, basically the reason a sauce is breaking is the emulsification is breaking down. So your fat is separating from your liquid. Um, so if you're using something, um, you know, like if like eggs are a typical emulsifier, um, you know, and something like a hollandaise um, and if that, you know, you're whisking an oil or butter into the sauce, you know, kind of the same way if you would in a vegan one. Um, you're basically, uh, you know, whisking that fat into the liquid to be able to get it to emulsify. Now, if you add that fat too quickly um, into that liquid, it could actually break uh, as well. Now, you could also get it too hot. So at high temperatures, um, you know, uh, sometimes sauces will break apart as well. So you want to keep, um, you know, the, the sauce a little bit, um, you know, especially if you're doing an egg, uh, you know, and since you're doing the chicken one, I'm guessing you're doing, you know, eggs and that. Um, but it's about 180 degrees is where eggs start to coagulate. So you want to try to keep it below boiling for certain. Um, you know, flour sauces can typically be heated a little bit more, but you want to keep them again at a simmer. You don't want to get them um, boiling. Um, other things is that the sauce might have been kept too long, you know, so they're typically, um, these sauces, uh, you know, are served best right away, um, you know, so as soon as you're serving or as soon as you're done with the dish, try to serve them as close to that as well. Um, and right before you do, try to very gently, um, you know, whisk with a, a spoon or a whisk as well. Um, but just you want to let it cool down a little bit and then re, um, uh, re-whisk that to be able to make that uh, work for you. Um, and then lastly, you know, sometimes if you refrigerate sauces like that, um, some of these like kind of finicky sauces will uh, also separate when they're cooled down below room temperature. Um, typically, I'll just kind of heat them up just a little bit more on a saute pan um, and then whisk them in the pan to be able to get that sauce so it's not breaking again. So um, those are probably my best hints at that. So it's a little bit of technique. Um, it shouldn't be that you're ask, um, using the half and half because you're, that's basically a fat, you know, but um, try a couple of those different things and see what works out for you. Hope that helps, Phoenix. All right. So our next one is from Karen. Uh, hi, Chef Dan. First, thank you and the entire team, including Chef Fran, who we love, Chef Fran, for all you do. You have changed the course of my life in never ways I thought possible. And 
The question is, and do you unopen dried prunes freeze well? So do unopened dried prunes freeze well? So, you know, dried prunes typically, you know, say about six months. And this is a kind of a weird thing that, I, uh, you know, I've seen this before on prunes where the USDA actually recommends refrigerating prunes um, instead of freezing them. And partly of that is to be able to get, you know, you don't want to have any of the frostbite on them and stuff as well. But, uh, you know, dried prunes typically last about six months just on their own. They can last up to a year if you refrigerate them, but they'll only last about a month if you freeze them for some reason. That's just the USDA standards. So I think that that's probably um, what I would go with. You know, if you're looking to save them a little bit longer, uh, put them in the refrigerator. Try to keep them sealed as well, too. Um, but I hope that helps out. There you go, Karen. Um, and thanks for all your great answers, Phoenix. Yep, uh, no problem at all. All right, Amy, uh, there is a formula for chocolate mousse that calls for four avocados. Could I please get a specific size or a better weight in grams for that? Also, the written is 100, the final written is 100 points and 10% of our grade. And the practical showcase says it's 50 points, 10%, Amy. I'm not 100% sure what course you're talking about or in what recipe, but you know, in a chocolate avocado mousse, um, the, if we're doing it a recipe that we're typically using, um, four medium sized avocados. Um, I don't have an exact weight for that, but, uh, you know, just from doing some work with avocados from Mexico, they actually have a scale on their avocados from Mexico site that you can see what a medium sized avocado is. And they'll give you those, uh, in ounces as well. So you might want to check that out just to be able to get those. As far as the final written, um, hundred points 10% of you definitely want to contact Ruby support for that so you can do that on the bottom uh, right hand of your screen you'll see a support button or a Q&A question so you can ask our support teams to be able to give you a hand with that just not knowing what course you're in or which one you're talking about I can't help you with that and if there is an error we'll definitely fix that on that too so thanks for your question Amy um, you know and also in that uh, for the avocado mousse four avocados is great I'll typically, if I'm going to use four avocados and say medium sized avocados, I probably use, I don't know, about three tablespoons of cacao, depending on how dark I want it to be. Um, and I'd probably use about five to six dates blended up into a date paste and blend it into it. Just a little bit of vanilla, blend the entire thing up and you have a nice chocolate mousse made of avocado. Um, and again, you can add more cacao um, or cocoa if you want to, to be able to get a darker um, flavor for that. So the dark, the more cacao or cocoa you use, the darker chocolate flavor you'll actually get out of it. Uh, that's something I used to make all the time and, uh, you know, pretty used to that one too. And so now I do it pretty much by eye. All right, our next question is from Sharon. In sauteing without oil, is it important not to add in liquid at the beginning as opposed to a brief amount of water or stock? Although I've gotten better, I use expensive stainless pans on gas heat and it's easy to burn the onions. Yes, that can happen right away. Um, so, you know, for this, the way we teach the water saute is to be able to heat your pan up a little bit until you see that little water droplet being able to you know, boil over the top and it kind of floats around a little bit. Um, that's a great technique for it. But if you're adding onions directly into that, you will get a uh, seared onion pretty quick. So um, what I'd like to do is put it over a medium 
um, heat. And right when I get to that point where I get a little bit of that water in there, I might put a little bit more until that evaporates and it helps cool the pan down just a little bit. Then I'll put my onions into it until it starts to release the natural sugars off of the onion. Um, now you can move the onions around in the pan while this is happening so they don't actually darken on the bottom. In fact, I recommend it. So once you put your onions into the pan, let them sit for a minute, then use your tongs or your spatula or just flip it around to be able to make sure those onions are moving around a little bit. And you'll start to see that natural caramelization happening. And the natural sugars come off of the uh, onion and they'll stick to the bottom of the pan. This is at the point you actually want to add a little bit of that liquid, the water or the stock, because then what you're doing is deglazing the pan and getting the brown off the bottom of the pan and putting it back onto the onions. There's an old chef adage that if you're leaving brown in the pan, you're leaving the flavor in the pan. And that's quite true. So what you're trying to do is get the brown off the bottom of the pan and put it back onto the onions. With those nice stainless steel pans you have, you'll actually see that very easily where if, uh, a lot of people would do it in a non-stick pan um, and it's much harder to be able to see the brown happen on the bottom of the pan. It's one of the reasons we recommend the stainless steel for that technique so you can actually get used to it and see the browning that's happening in the pan and be able to transfer that natural sugar up to the onion as well. So to answer, yes, you do want to heat it up um, to a bit. I usually put a little bit of water at the beginning to be able to release the heat a little bit, but I also keep it at a very high heat. Unless I'm acting really quick and have my eyes on it all the time. So I hope that helps, Sharon. Um, Dale, what do you think about using TVP in dishes? So TVP, for those who don't know, is textured vegetable protein. It's typically a soy product that's pressed out um, of an expunger, very much like they do a lot of different products today as far as like pea proteins and stuff like that to get different textures. Uh, textured vegetable protein is very much like a crumbled meat texture, um, and it is processed so there are some things that are taken out of the soy to be able to make it into that extruder and put it out in the form that it makes it look like a crumbled beef um, i do use tvp but i don't use it a lot i might use it once every month and a half or something um, and typically it's for something you know just uh, kind of quick and easy i'll usually rehydrate it kind of quickly in a saute pan maybe with some you know, a little bit of fennel and cracked pepper and stuff like that to be able to get some of those, uh, you know, uh, ground beef kind of textures. And I usually use it in something like a, a taco or enchiladas or something like that. Um, TVP is fine. I just don't do it a ton because it is a very processed ingredient. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that if you feel comfortable with it, that's great. Um, I just don't do it as much because I'd rather just do the tofu, um, you know, which is not as processed as well. I mean, Tofu is processed. You're basically, you know, it's blended soy and then, um, you know, so you are processing it down. But TVP is a little bit different, a little bit further, and you are stripping some things out of it as well. So um, as far as textured vegetable protein, yeah, totally. It's okay to use. Just remember um, that it is highly processed. So if you're worried about that, just use it in moderation and happy cooking. All right, our next question is, uh, hi, dear chef, can you please show how to debone a chicken? Please, thanks a lot, chef. So, Indrit, uh, I won't show you how to debone a chicken, um, specifically because I'm not doing any knife skills right now, but I'm also uh, 
plant-based. So uh, I actually couldn't tell you the first thing about uh, deboning a chicken, but we do have a video on it in Ruby. You can also, um, if you actually, uh, I worked with Jacques Pepin to create his class on Ruby. He has a great video on deboning chicken that quite honestly is a little hard for me to watch, but um, it's a good video to be able to show how to do the technique on that too. So uh, you can find that on YouTube. So two different techniques to be able to do it, butchering an, an, a whole chicken on Ruby and um, the one from Jacques Pepin on chicken deboning as well. A little bit different techniques because Jacques does do it a little bit differently. Um, it's odd that I know that, but it's just from watching these videos. Um, so yeah, I hope that helps. Uh, both those videos should get you exactly what you're looking for. All right. Our next question is from Deborah. As I reset my pantry, are the items going to last well enough in properly closed mason jars, lids with rubber seals versus leaving them in their original manufacturer's zip closed plastic pouch? Or are they better in their match in their original package? Spoilage concern. So this is something that I do all the time. Um, now, the way I typically keep my pantry items is in something like that. I will actually either use a mason jar or I'll use the OXO, you know, uh, seal lids on the top there and put pantry items in those. But I won't do it when I get right from the grocery store. What I'll actually do is keep it in the package that uh, it came in from the grocery store until I open it. And then once I open it, then I pour it into one of those other containers. Now, the reason I do that is just because the little zip things and things like that on those packages typically fail. They don't usually close the way they're supposed to. They're not the greatest. Um, and they're often left open, which makes it that the, the air will get into it and the food won't be the best of quality. So until I actually open the product to use it, I keep it in the original packaging because it's all sealed. That's the best way to be able to have it from the original packaging is perfect. But once you actually use a little bit of it, like let's just say it's cornmeal, right? Then after you open it up and uh, use whatever cornmeal you do, but I pour the rest into a mason jar or your airtight container and then store it that way. Now I'll typically put a date that I did it on the bottom um, or I, I, that I opened it and I'll put it on the bottom of the container as well. So that way I know how, uh, how old it is as well. I actually do that with my spices too. So, um, you know, I, keep an extensive spice rack, but I use my own jars for those too. Um, and I put labels on the bottom of as well, because spices typically have about a one year shelf life before they start to lose their flavor. So I always mark them on the bottom to be able to make sure uh, to use them by that date. Now, if I have a backup, so say if I'm using garlic powder um, and I'm running low, I'll buy a new container of garlic powder, but I'll keep that completely sealed until I need to uh, open that one to restock the one in front of it. So I hope that helps Deborah. All right, our next question is from Kathleen. Uh, thank you entire and the entire team for these Q&A sessions. I learn a lot, even when I don't ask a question myself. Well, I'm glad you asked a question this week. Um, I'm in the habit of using a garlic press whenever a recipe calls for chopped or minced garlic. Is this okay or is it better to not use a knife? So there's a lot of debate on this, and garlic presses have gotten a lot of bad rap, especially in the last 10 years. Now, um, I understand why to a point, um, because typically when you're pushing garlic through a garlic press, it has a lot of little holes that are on the inside of it, and when you push it through, 
the garlic kind of comes out in like spaghetti like kind of structure which is kind of weird um you know and it'll break apart because you know it's kind of structured like an onion um but you get these kind of like tubes of garlic which is um kind of weird texture wise and it'll also get a lot left in there it also leaves all this kind of residue on the inside of it too you're not sure what to do with it i honestly do own a garlic press i barely ever use it but when i do i usually chop back over it again um now there's an article i read on serious eats recently that was actually quite good talking about the difference between uh the flavor profile of uh, uh garlic press versus mincing it with your knife versus um using a mortar and pedestal and the flavor differences actually came out pretty different which is interesting i will typically use a knife to mince my garlic to be able to get it to go small if i need it to be a puree i'll actually uh, take the side of my knife and um, after you know i typically put a garlic clove on my um, cutting board and then i'll smash it with my knife and then mince it but then if i need a puree i'll actually just take my knife and kind of do a smoothing over the top of that to be able to make it into a paste as well mortar and pedestal will be just fine too now as far as the garlic press goes you can use it if it's what gets you in the kitchen that's totally fine I would typically rock my knife over it a little bit to do a little mincing of that to make sure you're not getting any kind of weird chunkiness um, or those kind of like spaghetti tubes I'm talking about from the garlic press as well. You will see a little bit of um, flavor difference too. So, um, you know, you're getting more surface area from the minced versus the pressed as well. And the press, you're kind of pressing juices and the oils, the natural oils that come out of it, and you're leaving a lot of that in your garlic press. So you're going to get a little bit more flavor from just your minced garlic as well. So I hope that helps, Kathleen. All right, so Bonnie, my local farmer gave us three pounds of Swiss chard today, and I have no earthly idea what to do with it. Any ideas? I love Swiss chard. In fact, it's one of the things that I grow in my garden every single year, and I have lots of it. I usually have about six plants of Swiss chard going, and I pick it off just by the leaves, or my daughters do the same thing, and they're, you know, four and two years old. So they'll, they'll pick it off for me, and um, first thing I'm going to give it a good rinse because it usually is pretty sandy. And I do it in a host of different ways. Um, you know, a, a lot of times I'll cut it into really thin ribbons, um, and do a saute out of that and I'll do maybe start with some onions and mushrooms in a pan and just do a caramelization of those and then throw the greens in over the top with a little bit of paprika and it's a nice green setup just that way as well. Um, another thing that I'll do with them too is make a wrap. So I'll actually take uh, the uh, pan of water that will fit the, the green itself and just put it in there for a couple seconds until uh, it starts to loosen up and then I can take it out and let it cool and then make uh, a wrap and like a burrito um, like a vegetable wrap out of them instead of using a tortilla super fun thing to be able to do um, and you're not getting all the grains and stuff like that if you're trying to avoid something like that um, but yeah I typically will do the greens version where I'll just chop it up with some mushrooms and onions a little bit of paprika on top, some cracked pepper, maybe a little bit of salt too. But definitely one of my favorite areas to go in there too. It's actually quite good raw too. It's a little bit bitter, so sometimes you might want an acid to it or add an acid to it. Um, and you can massage it just like you can massage kale as well, but it's not going to hold its color as well. So those are a couple suggestions to do with it, Bonnie. Um, and those are always fun things to do. All right, our next one is from Ish uh Shrika, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, I noticed my food does not often stay hot once I remove it from my cooking pan and transfer it to my plate. How do you get food to stay warm so it's not cold by the time you're eating it? This is a great question. 
So in the food service industry, people do this all the time. Now, well, the secret to this is, is to warm your plate. So if you're doing something, you might want to, um, you know, put your oven on just this lowest setting and keep your plates in it before you're actually plating as well. Um, and you'll see at like high end, you know, restaurants and stuff like that, or you can even find them at some buffets too, where the plates that are all stacked in there, they're warm as soon as you get them. And the reason they do that is to be able to keep the food warm that goes onto them. Because if you're taking a plate out that's at 72, 75 degrees room temperature, depending on where you are, where the air conditioning is, or if there is air conditioning, um, the food that's coming out of the pan is quite hot. But if you put it onto a, a plate that's at that temperature, it's going to start cooling it directly and immediately because all the surface area on the plate is touching the food. So the secret to that is to um, warm your plates ahead of time. Um, I've seen people have like towels that they microwave that they wrap plates on as well too. Um, but the most common is probably putting them in your oven in a low setting to be able to keep them warm. Be careful when you take them out of the oven though, because they will naturally be hot. And I'm not talking about heating them up until like 350 degrees or anything like that. I'm just saying to keep them so they're warm. You can still hold them with your hand, um, but they're still going to keep your food warm. So I hope that helps. All right, here's one from Jen. Do you have any tips for making cashew cream smooth and creamy? I've tried soaking the cashews for longer without success. It always comes out rather coarse. Thanks. Um, yeah, so this is actually something that, um, you know, I have a lot of experience in making cashew cream. So you can soak them longer, but uh, typically, you know, first thing you want to dump off the water that you're using in those two. But um, uh, the secret with this is to have a high powered blender. Um, I went through so many different blenders when I first started doing catering, um, doing vegan catering. Um, and I would, would just go through them like crazy until I finally got a Vitamix. Now it doesn't have to be a Vitamix. I'm not saying you have to go buy a, you know, a Vitamix, but that made the biggest difference for me. Um, soaking them for at least 24 hours, dumping out the water and putting them into the blender with your vinegar, your lemon juice, and a little bit of water and then blend it very slowly and then keep working your way up until you see the tornado in the center of the blender. You'll actually see this in a lot of examples of high, uh, high power blenders versus a conventional blender. And the biggest difference is the science of seeing the tornado in the center. And you'll see that the high powered ones have a wider um, tornado uh, top at this top of it, um, where the, the cheaper blenders don't do that as much. Now what that's doing is creating more movement in the inside of the blender, and that's getting more of those little pieces of cashews to go towards those blades. Um, so part of that is just being able to start it on low and keep going higher and higher um, until you actually get to the point where you're seeing that vortex happening in the center, and you want to let it go for longer than you'd actually think. Um, in fact, sometimes like a Vitamix will heat up a little too hot. So if some people are doing raw foods, they have to stay below 110 degrees and the Vitamix can actually heat those things up. So you have to take a pause in between it to be able to make sure you're getting that smooth consistency you're looking for. So two tricks. Um, one is, well, I guess three, one is getting a high powered blender. The second is moving very slowly on your dial to be able to go from slow to higher. Um, and then also go a little bit longer than you'd think. So to get a really smooth cashew cream, if you have say a half of a Vitamix fill or half your plundered fill, 
um, you might want to go like 12 minutes or so to be able to blend it to get it really smooth texture to make sure you're not getting any little tiny bits in there and you won't see those in it too. Um, I hope that helps, Jen. All right. Our next question is from Therese. How do you get meat-like texture in my burgers without using TVP, vital gluten, wheat, or any processed food? The best, best texture has been using mushrooms and nuts, but nuts increases the calories aside from mushrooms and nuts. Any suggestions for meaty burgers? Uh, I've seen a lot of different things used for this. Um, jackfruit is becoming quite uh, popular nowadays and easier to be able to find. Um, now, jackfruits are typically these huge fruits about this big, a little harder to find in that full form, but you are able to find them in a lot of um, uh, like packets and things like that. You can also find them in cans. So you can do uh, a nice meaty burger out of that. You just need to find what binder you want to be able to use. You could use something like a breadcrumb and maybe an aquafaba or something like that to be able to use as your uh, your binder to be able to use jackfruit. I love that the mushroom aspect is you're already thinking about that because that's adding a certain umami flavor to it, which is giving that meaty kind of flavor, which a lot of people like in the burger. Um, but then, you know, my favorite veggie burgers are ones that actually don't taste anything like meat at all. Um, they're a blend of all kinds of different vegetables. So I might find broccoli or red pepper in it or peas. Um, and I've even seen, you know, flavored ones that I've really liked too. Um, if, if there's maybe a curry or paprika or something into it as well too. Um, and then you can put a host of other things into it. You can even use like a mashed potato as your binder. Um, you know, if you're doing something like a samosa burger. Um, so, you know, experimenting around with those options is probably one of your better bets. I do, uh, you know, seeing a lot of the grading lately, I've seen some people do some cool things with some uh, jackfruit as their meat replacers to get that meat-like texture they're looking for. Um, you can also go with just mushrooms and different types of mushrooms. So shredding your, mu your mushrooms um, very much like uh, the Wicked Healthy does from the Sarno Brothers. You can see Derek's um, you know, techniques on that where he shreds mushrooms and does different kinds of meats and steaks with them. Or you can do the same thing into a burger too, just looking for a binder to be able to form it into a patty. So uh, I think that's probably my best suggestion for you. I hope that helps out. Our next question is from Elaine. What ingredients or method would produce a firm, chewy veggie burger? Bean-based burgers taste good, but they seem too mushy. Thanks for any suggestions. Um, so that really kind of depends on what you're putting into it. Um, you know, I do a mushroom and barley burger that I like a lot, but uh, the barley actually helps to be able to keep that texture really nice on that because I don't over... Um, cook it so it's not mushy and I don't put a ton of water into it. Um, and that's a really great one. Uh, I think that's actually on our website too. Um, but, uh, you know, to be able to get it, even the bean-based burgers that I've done, you know, um, part of that is just getting, not adding too much water to them if you don't want to have that kind of, uh, you know, the mushy aspect of it, I guess, is keeping a lot of the liquid out. Now, if you are using mushrooms, remember that mushrooms retain water in them as well, too. So um, when you're doing something like that, you might want to take the mushrooms and put them into a cheesecloth or into a towel and wring them out so you get a lot of the liquid out of those mushrooms. But you might even want to retain a little to be able to put some on the top to be able to have a liquid if you use too much or if you take too much out. Um, but part of that, yeah, is just being able to choose the ingredients. Your bean-based burgers, um, you know, like we just had some the other night that were quite good, and it was, uh, I think it was beans and bread breadcrumbs and 
um, different herbs and spices into them as well. And I think it was an aquafaba, uh, you know, binder as well too. Um, but the key to that was again, making sure it didn't have a lot of liquid into it. So it would bind together really well and not mush apart or fall apart really easy. All right. I hope that helps. Kim, what's the next best ingredient to use as a sweetener other than dried fruit? Hmm. Well, Fresh fruit would definitely be on the top of that list. Dried fruit is a great one to be able to use because I use that one probably most often. Now, this also depends if you're following a whole food plant-based diet. Now, if you're not, that definitely opens up a lot more categories for you to be able to go into. But I think probably if you're eating only whole foods and plant-based diets, um, your best, you know, it's going to be a fruit because that's basically where um, any of the sugars are coming from. Now, if you're, uh, you know, taking that beyond that, I would actually use agave as kind of my go-to as far as adding um, sweet to things. If it's not dried fruit, um, if you're not vegan, um, you know, honey is definitely an option. Um, but most people who are doing, um, you know, that kind of a diet aren't doing honey as well. Um, but yeah, so dried fruit, fresh fruit, definitely the best places to be able to start in those. There are a lot of other products out there that are derived from, uh, you know, fruits and, um, fruits as well. Some from vegetables, but, um, you know, they're typically pretty processed as well. So at that point you can actually use a granular sugar. Um, you know, I always go for organic granular sugar to make sure that's always vegan as well. So it's not been processed bone meal. Um, but agave, uh, is probably one of those other bets too, but quite honestly, a date base is usually the way that I go for, um, you know, uh, for adding any kind of sweetness to any dishes as well. So I hope that helps Kim. Well, it looks like we're actually at the end of our course. We have no more questions here. So I wanted to thank you for joining us today on our Ask Me Anything Office Hours. We had a great session today, and if you have any other questions, feel free to bring them in. Have a great day.